Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. I'm here with Dr. Baraki and special guest, Derek Miles. He is a physical therapist and he's going to school us all with tons of knowledge today. And maybe we'll surprise him with some questions. So again, if this is your first time joining us, thank you. Uh, I am Jordan Feigenbaum. I am a family medicine resident in Southern California, Austin. I'm an internal medicine resident in Southern Texas. Also fond of Cubans. Uh, hashtag Puerto Ricans. Puerto Ricans. <laughs> My preference. So uh, we're very glad to have with us our guest uh, today, uh, Derek Miles, DPT. I'm going to let him uh, introduce himself, but basically um, we are happy to have him on the show because he is uh, similarly of a critical thinking type mind to us. So I'm going to let him introduce himself. And while he does that, I'm going to grab the power cord from my computer before it dies. Derek, <laughs> tell us. Well, I'm Derek Miles. I'm a physical therapist at the University of Florida. I don't have southern yet, um, north central Florida, so the farthest you can be from the ocean and in your direction. So. <laughs> So your landlocked portion of Florida. Yes, yes. 62 whole miles. Oh, God. Uh, okay, so here are the really pressing questions because, honestly, this low back pain tendinopathy thing is going gonna, is gonna to be a little, a little dry. No, maybe we'll make it entertaining. But what book are you reading right now? Ooh, well, let's see. I just finished Being Wrong by Katherine Schultz. Good book. on how the statistics mislead us or getting comfortable in the margin of error. So I, that's where I just went. Okay. All right. So second <laughs> question, uh, what is the most interesting thing you've learned in the last week? Um, I am moving to Stanford in two months because my girlfriend just matched into pediatrics. Hey, I heard. So Stanford. Congratulations. A, yeah. Stanford's a new program, I guess. They, uh, Small, uh, not <laughs> yeah, small, little established, little established. Yeah, county program. Yeah. Got it. Well, you know, hopefully, little, little known school. <laughs> she, she's an underachiever. What can I say? Jeez, congratulations. <laughs> that's awesome, man. That's all. Yeah, that's great. Uh, Baraki, what are you reading? You're reading some like anatomy text, I think. <clears throat> no, I'm still working on how doctors think since the last time we recorded because that was just a week ago, and uh, I'm extremely busy. So <laughs> that's that's great. I'm uh I'm mostly reading the 531 articles that's basically what i've been reading <laughs> at the time of this posting i'm getting trolled on the internet by people who think that i did an unfair criticism of that program i'm not reading anything else because i've mostly been looking at the back of my eyelids in between baby delivery so uh and things that i've i've realized in the last week no matter how precipitous the labor, you should always gown up and put a face mask on because you're never sure what's going to happen when the senior resident pulls on a cord. It may avulse, and then blood may go everywhere. As it turns out, the start of life is full of surprises as well. Surprise, surprise, there's blood on your face, and you don't know the uh, HIV status of your patient. Oh. But it, it's what not have? How did you not know? Uh, it, yeah, so she came in precipitous labor, and then uh, no prenatal testing. No, so we drew a plant panel. Yeah. Luckily, it came. Everything came back today, so I could sleep. But going to the occupational health office was fun. Yeah, yeah. You would have gotten started on three drug therapy right away. If yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's what they said. They said basically, if you come back tonight and it's reactive, then you're going on three drug therapy. Exactly. Yeah. So I said, good, good news. That'll be good for my meat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, All right. so let's, let's jump into this thing. So uh, I will be asking Derek pressing questions, and then Austin Baraki, Dr. Baraki will jump in, and then hopefully they've sufficiently fleshed this all out, and I don't have anything to contribute besides funny jokes or nuances that they didn't actually ask, but I will throw in. Um, okay, so Swam Train asks, Hello, my ortho has diagnosed me with a probable shoulder labrum tear. It's been very disappointing as I can't bench or squat without significant sharp pain. Do you have any recommendations on how to go about training? And, and then he writes an ellipsis. And also, if you have any opinions on platelet-rich plasma, PRP, therapy for these kind of injuries. Derek. Well, so the first thing we have to start here is always asking about the base rates of this. And... Having a probable labrum tear doesn't really tell us that much, strictly because there's a relatively low correlation between having a labral tear and being symptomatic. So you always have to take into account the fact of 
it could have been there before you started having shoulder pain as well, and there's a high likelihood it was. Often it's much more a case of finding a way to scale what you're doing to let the tissue adapt, let your shoulder calm down, and then get back into benching and squatting. Um, as for PRP, to say the evidence is scant is probably to be complementary towards PRP. Mm -hmm. um, the final axe has not been dropped on it yet, but the Damoclean sword is definitely swinging. And, and specifically, just before you answer, Dr. Baraki, you're talking about PRP for tissue injuries, full on, like a labeled, yes. okay, not necessarily osteoarthritis in particular or, or something of that nature. Yes. Okay, that's good. Well, not too good, but I, last time this guy, a buddy of mine, uh, he's a physician, sent me this monster email with like a ton of PRP articles like about osteoarthritis. And uh, instead of reading the eight papers that he's attached to me, I just, you know, I, I went and looked up some effect sizes and stuff like that. And so in any event, I think you're saying uh, what the data suggests that PRP for tissue injuries is, is uh, scant, again, being a yes. complimentary sort of reference. Okay. Yes. Dr. Baraki, question to you. So, yeah, I mean, I agree with the general approach to rehabilitation in this in this situation. We also, I'm not sure when when, when the question asker says, uh, diagnose me with a probable shoulder labrum tear, I'm assuming that that's just based on physical exam, which is which is fine and good that it's coming from from an ortho, but at the same time, it's it's still probable. Like we still don't have a you know a definite diagnosis here. And a lot of times, as as Derek said, that you know the correlation with pain is poor. And I mean, you, Jordan, you yourself diagnosed yourself with a probable hip labral tear that was affecting your squat and then a couple months later you're squatting back up to 585 and doing all right so a lot of times these things can be rehabbed by you know proper by by um there's ways to work around these injuries to load things in the way that the tissue can tolerate it pain-free and then kind of work back to your goal movements from there and yeah for prp i think i've discussed this previously and it's one of those it's one of those interventions that kind of meets all the check boxes of something that patients want and something that they will really have a lot of like high expectations that it's going to work. It's one of those interventions that we've described before as being like very dramatic in the sense that they're drawing this blood out and spinning it down and re-injecting things in the office. So there's this and kind of procedure. Proceed yeah. It, so, well, that adds something because it's because it's all natural, right? There's that, too. So there's just all these things that, that people look for with these interventions, and it just escalates higher and higher the probability of getting a strong placebo effect out of it. And I think that's what's reflected in the data for some of these interventions. Well, you know, well, when, I, when I went transfusions, okay. I wanted to be fair trade and uh, organic, uh, also free range, <laughs> single Cage origin. free packed red blood cells. I don't want GMO packed red blood cells. I prefer, <laughs> I prefer organic. Uh, yeah, I, exactly. You can get it. Well, and even with this, if you look at PRP, PRP isn't PRP. Even in the papers we have, it's always whatever the proprietary blend of the person publishing it. So it, you can't really make the general statement when one person centrifuges for 20 minutes and the other does it for 45 because that obviously makes theirs better. Right, so right. it's lack of control. Yeah. 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 So we don't, we, not only is the data uh, scant, but the existing data set is not even homogenous for what they're using. So PRP is even hard to define exactly what it is. Uh, and then you get all sorts of different results. And I think most of the evidence suggests that for tissue injuries, PRP is, eh. you know, the, the, the improvements are mainly short term. And then from the actual dramatic intervention, like Dr. Baraki alluded to. Um, anecdotally, which is not what this podcast is about, uh, but uh, another one of the starting strength coaches had really um, nasty uh, patellar, uh, patellar ligament pain, and he ended up getting um, PRP injections. And he, <laughs> I remember him texting me daily for three weeks, says, it's worse every morning. It's worse. It's worse. It's worse. <laughs> and that's not to scare people off from PRP, um, but just... I have to understand, you have to understand going into something like that, especially if you're paying out of pocket for it, that we don't necessarily know that it's going to help you. It certainly doesn't have enough evidence to say that this is a, a really good alternative to activity modification, which is, I think, what we all would have, uh, initially prescribe um, to, to uh, both limit pain while training and then also go down that road of rehab. You guys agree with that? I do. Yeah. Hey. Well, certainly. Jordan. <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, yeah, let's do the questions, and then and then we'll come All back right. to. Sounds good. Far sighted Jonesy asks: the top of my quad near the hip hurts. I believe I injured it during hill sprints. I can squat and deadlift without pain until the weight is maximal. Any suggestions on dealing with this? Uh, before again, Derek's schooling us with just evidence-based knowledge here. The top of the quad near the hip is a big area. There's a lot of stuff up there, you know, and I think it's difficult in this medium. You know, we ask for questions on Instagram and people are like, hey, my hip hurts. And we're like, yeah, well, what does it hurt doing? You know, like what are the exacerbating motions? Where exactly if you had to pinpoint it, uh, you know, and then anything make it better? What if you tried? All the, all the sort of standard uh, uh, history questions. But so with all those limitations, Derek, please diagnose and fix this human. <laughs> well, as you said, there's a whole lot going on up there. But if we look at just mechanism, if he injured it during hill sprints. Sorry if I assume gender there. Um, it, it could just How be, dare you, sir? I know. Intersex. He's intersex. Up. Yeah. Yes. Shim. Shim. Um, if it was during a hill sprint, our normal mechanism of that is either we overdid it and have some DOMs going on or you could have had a pull of a muscle there, in which case grade one DOMs is essentially listed as, uh, or DOMs is essentially listed as a grade one muscle strain these days anyway, so our, our treatment's probably not going to vary that much out of it. And the big thing we don't really know is how long has this been going on, because if this question's 24 hours, well, you're still in the window of DOMs, whereas if it's four weeks, we could be dealing with something a little bit more um, in-depth. Baraki. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. The, 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 th the other thing I'm interested in here is the acuity. of. I mean, he says, since he says he believed he injured it during hill sprints, it's like, did you feel something real acute, like mid-stride while you're, you know, doing aggressive hip flexion on the way up the hill? Um, but, you know, regardless, you can squat and deadlift without pain until the weight is maximal. So we're going to pull out the typical doctor recommendation here and don't do maximal weights right now. You can squat and deadlift without pain, so find the weights that you can tolerate and try to work them up. You know, perhaps you might be reloading it too aggressively um, when you, if you're immediately trying to get up to maximal weights, you know? Sure. And let's, but let's make, let's be better than regular doctors, okay? Because your doctor doesn't even lift. So the thing is this, I would argue that you shouldn't be deadlifting and squatting maximally anyway, unless you're at a meet. I mean, really. We don't. We also don't know what he means by maximally. Well, I know. So that all I'm saying is that you know, doing a set of five, uh, five at ten at RPE ten or a maximal effort is probably not indicated for your for optimal programming at anyway. But let's say that you're doing Texas method as written because you are the unicorn by which Texas method is appropriate for. Well, then my recommendation initially is let's take that down to a seven, right? So something you could do a set of eight with, for instance. And if you can do that pain-free, well, I think that's a perfect way to start reloading the system. Um, yep. Also stop doing hill sprints. Like I, and I say that because if you don't have a history of running and conditioning at that sort of level, ultimately the risk reward is so favored, uh, so t uh, tilted in the uh, towards risk because your tissues are prepared to do that sort of rapid, you know, flexion extension cycling under high ground fo uh, force reaction, you know, uh, ground reaction forces rather. Uh, you're going to suffer an eccentric breaking injury or something like that, uh, or overuse injury, and then uh, for what? For what? You know. Because if you don't have that history, you're not an athlete anyway. Let let's just be let's be real here, okay? I'm I'm just saying that that's the, if you're doing it for conditioning, there are better options: prowler, sled, yeah. rower. I think we would all we would all agree with that. Assault yeah. bike, or if that's your niche and that's what you want to do for conditioning, realize that it takes some time to adapt to it instead of just going balls out and running up the hill as fast as you can. Yep. Yep. Standard recommendation when I, if people are vehemently like, I need, I want to do sprints because it's some sort of weird thing where they're like, Oh, this is a natural human archetype. I need to sprint. And I'm like, fuck, stop watching people who say the word archetypes when we're, when we're referring to Not human <laughs> functional patterns, man. That's yeah. what it is. Yeah. So, so, you know, if, that, if they're vehemently, you know, in favor of doing these things, then yeah, I typically actually uh, prescribe like an intensity. I'm like, all right, let's do this at 70% for the first week or two. And then we'll titrate it up until, uh, and the idea is just prepare the tissues for that sort of loading. Um, okay. 
Spencer underscore Parker. What do you think his name is? You think it's Spencer Parker or you think it's Parker Spencer? And can you Works trust both ways. Yeah, and you can you trust somebody with two first names? Never. No, I don't know. Dude. Unless it's Tammy Lynn. Or Derek, or Derek Miles, Miles, perhaps. <laughs> Derek Miles. Yeah, so guys, just consider the source. All right. <laughs> Spencer underscore Parker asks, do you recommend your clients do corrective stretching? PT. No. The first thing you have to, what is, what are we trying to correct? And then if you look at the lit on this, there was a review on trying to reduce uh, injuries. And it said basically everything works except stretching didn't pop out. Wow. So... Wait, wait, like so everything crazy. else works besides stretching for preventing injury? Yeah, so from the conclusions of the study, like verbatim, despite a few outlying studies, consistent favorable estimates were obtained for all injury prevention measures except for stretching. So, and that's BMJ, or British, yeah, British Journal of Sports Med in 2014. So That's, that's basically like know. the Stanford of medical journals, though. It's kind of like, you know, local programs. Yeah, it's, not, not it's very big. Based, Plus, so. British, you know. <laughs> uh, Austin, do you recommend your clients do corrective stretching? I do not ever recommend such things, and I would agree with the question being, what are you, like, a lot of times this kind of a, kind of a question is coming from someone who think who feels that they have a postural anomaly and that they need to stretch their way out of it. Yeah. And, uh, and, and this, you know, that, that they want to stretch because their shoulders are forward or because they feel like their hamstrings are tight when they try to touch their toes. Uh, of course they are. Um, you know, so there's these kind of situations where they self-diagnose something erroneously and then feel like they have to stretch their way out of it. Without realizing that, A, there's really no such thing as like, a, like there's no clear, well-defined definition of like a good posture that you should be striving for um, by trying to manipulate your own physical structure because it just uh, doesn't correlate with pain. But our cavemen yeah, stood in a certain way, barefoot, in the savannah. That's the, arch- that's the archetype, man. That's, that's the so, archetype. But, but, Derek, <laughs> but Derek, my hamstrings are tight and I have lower crossed syndrome and you know, you're telling me that I shouldn't stretch my hamstrings before I under- do physical activity? I'm saying if you want to stretch, then knock yourself out, but it's not going to do a damn thing for you. Well, so. well but what about my mobility wad? I do, no, I do ROMWAD daily uh, because, you know, it's fashionable. They sent me a mat, and this very pretty girl who was advertising for them told me to do so. Uh, what do you think about ROMWAD for daily stretching? We like to be inundated with bullshit. Um, <laughs> and and I, I'm... I, I mean that by it's these words that no one has a clear definition of. It, it would be hilarious to give like uh, an entrance exam essay of define mobility and just see how broad right. the definitions come back for you. Right. So how do we develop something we can't even define? Well, you can't. <laughs> so if it's a range of motion thing, then we progressively load it through an increased range of motion over time and realize that adaptation takes some time. Well, it's, how would how would you define mobility, Derek? Um, a selling tool to get people to buy books. <laughs> oh God! I sometimes call it func- functional stretching. Yes. Because that sounds a little better. Functional stretching. I like so, that. Functional. Yeah. Functional. Sounds boots. better. I mean, uh, as 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 we as we've discussed on this topic before, the ability of I mean, what I'm what I'm presuming this guy means by what I picture him doing when he talks about corrective stretching is not a thing that is going to lead to lasting structural change that he's looking for in terms of correcting whatever anomaly he's diagnosed himself with. Well, and I diagnosed myself there's with a... tight corpus. So how do I, how do I fix t- <laughs> tight body? Tight body well, syndrome. There's nothing really to say that you know stretching is horrible maybe that systematic review but if you want to do it and that's your niche go stretch but don't think it's an integral part of what's going on for or what you need to do to address the nebulous mobility yeah i mean what well, we've also talked about this in the context of a cost benefit type of analysis like whatever benefit you the the only benefit that you really are going to get out of it is uh feeling good about yourself because you have a preconceived notion that it's good and that it's something you should be doing Whereas the costs include t- 
time, energy, effort, as well as the risk of, well, the known phenomenon of reducing subsequent performance like power output and things like that in strength and power dependent activities. So if you still in that con with that type of thought process feel that the benefit, you feel so good that it outweighs all of those costs, then we can't help you. You know what I mean? But for anybody who's thinking about this a little bit more rationally, that cost-benefit analysis is pretty clear in, in, in terms of what direction we should be going here. You can save your time. You can save your energy. You can perform probably better by loading yourself through the range of motion and using that as your ability to achieve certain ranges of motion that are necessary for your sport or activity versus spending time stretching beforehand. Well, this comes from a guy who doesn't have any adhesions that, needs, that need to be broken up. <laughs> I think you're. I think you're the most troll moderator I've ever seen. No, well, so here's the interesting. Here's the thing. I think we all agree on this, right? So we just all have our own confirmational bias going on, and we try to we try to be objective. But at the same time, the the questions that the people have, the people at large, are likely this. You know, should I do ROMWAD? Should I do mobility wad? Do I have adhesions? Like, what sort of soft tissue therapy do you recommend optimally for for warming up? So we'll get into another question here, and we'll spin off this. Um, yeah. You know. So. Uh, Absi Adel asks, uh, heard you guys say that warming up stretching before a workout is not necessary. Why the fuck not? How else to develop mobility? Question mark. And then I'll add on the second part. What are our thoughts on grassland technique and cupping? <laughs> so, you know, so, so Derek, uh, three questions to you. Uh, what sort of warm up or stretching to before a resistance training, uh, would you recommend? And then if you were trying to increase range of motion about a joint, how would you do it? Uh, and then finally, you can just say the the words on Graston and cupping. <laughs> I would um, like to hear I would like to hear your evidence collection on Graston technique and cupping, though, in particular. Oh Lord, uh, <laughs> we might be here for a while. <laughs> there's more than so, people think. That's the, there's more than people think about it. Yeah. Well, uh, for warming up, I typically have my athletes warm up with the movements we're going to do. So if it's a squat day, we're going to warm up by going through some squats and working on a range of motion and trying to get everything primed and ready to go. We're not sitting there rolling on a foam roller or doing who knows what else. Um, as far as grassing or cupping, it's... I swear Graston technique is like a testament to the fact that physical therapists and whoever uses it are the shittiest cooks in the world because you've obviously never cooked a like rack of baby back ribs and had to remove the membrane off the back. If you think that rubbing a butter knife on something can change the state of fascia, it, it's to call it theatrical placebo is probably to denigrate the word placebo and cupping is no better. It's essentially the argument is you're trying to break adhesions, which we have discovered a star 40 light years away with seven planets and the Higgs boson, and yet somehow we have not found this mythical adhesion. Right. So, uh, let me tell not, you that a frog, a frog muscle cell once adhesed on a petri dish. <laughs> uh, yes. Also, I'll have you know that the peritoneal tissue of the human. Uh, can sometimes adhese due to fibrinolytic uh, uh, imbalance. So there's an imbalance that you have to fix. <laughs> oh, Lord. Um, um, so, so what you're saying, and, though, is Graston has uh, no effect on the tissue because it's just it's a butter knife. You're rubbing it on fascia that can't possibly break up any adhesions that we haven't even discovered yet. That'd be a fair... No. Okay. And then, yes, that, that would be a very fair assessment. And then cupping. So I'm about to lay face down here without my shirt on and have somebody burn a few... <laughs> Uh, uh, <laughs> glass cups onto my back and then rub them around. Um, also, we'll have some incense going and Yanni playing in the background. Is this optimal for recovery? So have you ever noticed with the Olympics, it's always the technique that leaves a mark on someone? Like kinesio tape went pink and blue. That way we all saw right. it. Cupping looked like you lost a fight to a lamprey. <laughs> it's, it's, like, it, it's like self advertising for itself yeah and it because an athlete is trained that hard and that long to get to that status and they need a magical piece of plastic vacuum in order to push them over the edge i'm not willing to take that point zero 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 one percent chance and say that has that kind of efficacy for that sure. so so well i, I want to have you know that i actually had a cupping kit sent to my house 
because why not? And then also, after I did it, I had three huge marks on my shoulder. The next day, I went into Lululemon and I got a date. So I think what we can conclude here is that cupping is good for relationships. That's what what I think. Graston is good for buttering your toast technique. And then um, cupping is good for relationships. Uh, I think so, Baraki, how would would you have your clients warm up prior to uh, uh, training? Yeah. So one of the issues that I noticed with this question, as soon as as soon as I read it, is that he said, "I heard you guys say that warming up slash stretching before a workout is not necessary," which is obviously conflating the two uh, things of warming up and stretching as being the exact, you know, like as stretching is a process by which you can warm up, um, which is obviously not true. So. I also agree. My personal warm-up when I go out to train is I pick up a bar and I do a quick barbell complex, some empty bar deadlifts, presses, squats, and then I start whatever I'm doing for the day. Sounds like CrossFit to me. Yeah. Yeah. It takes me about 45 to 60 seconds to warm up for my training session for the day. Um, And so, you know, most of my clients, I have them do something similar or I just have them get under the bar and get started. And sometimes with an older person or a stiffer person or somebody who actually does have what they perceive to be some sort of a mobility deal. I just have them start squatting, for example. They'll squat high for the first several sets with the empty bar. And then as I get some load on the bar, they'll actually find themselves squatting below parallel and be fine. What do you mean by stiff? It's a subjective sensation of their muscles at what they perceive to be their end range of motion, which is not actually their end range of motion once you get some load on them and get them warmed up. You know, I heard the hamstrings have a ca- have a few cavernous sinuses in them, and then you get some blood flow to the area, they get a little erect. Yeah. yeah. Ooh. Engorged, <laughs> in- 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 if you Engorged. Uh, words I did not think would show up in this podcast. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Then- I-, I was looking at an x-ray uh, the other day. No, sorry, uh, an MRI. And uh, I... The resident, uh, I basically trolled her and said, "Hey, have you heard of the Throckmorton sign?" You know, <laughs> <laughs> and, and so for you guys out there in the uh, listening audience or viewing audience, Throckmorton sign is basically if you see a penis uh, and if it's pointing to the side of the lesion. So if you're looking at like a hip X-ray or something or pelvis X-ray and the penis is pointing to the side of like a femur fracture, that's a positive Throcky, positive Throckmorton sign. <laughs> and if it's going the other way, it's a negative Throckmorton sign. Uh, yes. in, in any event, uh, I like zoomed in right on like the corpus cavernosum, and, and she goes, "What is that?" And I was like, "This explains so many things about what." <laughs> about what this, this is this is on OB. So again, they're not, not they're not, not used to that. Yeah, yeah, not turn, their territory. No, yeah, yeah, the penis knowledge just goes. Down. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I I agree with you, Dr. Baraki, about uh, warm up and stretching are not the same thing. I think it's very common um, to have people who are either previously inactive or sedentary most of their life uh, or, or who are sore, inflamed from a previous session who come in and yeah, they have their little, their muscle pliability, cute, hashtag Tom Brady, uh, <laughs> is, uh, is decreased. So they effectively the range of motion is being limited by being cold. Um, right. And, you know, so you have them warm up with any warm up. Uh, it increases muscle temperature, the viscosity in the muscles go down. They'd be able to uh, move a little bit better. I just have them do squats with the empty bar. Uh, usually be an EMOM every minute on the minute, do a set of five with the empty bar. And they just, that's their 10 minute sort of warm up to, to sort of uh, right. uh, get them warmed up enough to train. And, and again, you know, if you're hurt and you have to do different things to make you feel good enough to train, that's a different situation. But, also consider this, if you're age 20, you know, 20 to 40, and it takes you 30 minutes to get ready to lift weights, right? Like you're broken, right? There, there's yeah. something, either you have a severe injury, you know, that really needs the care of a professional behind it, uh, or, or you're just wasting time. Because an extra few well, sometimes, is- sometimes it's people who want to be broken, and so they want to have this 45-minute warm-up that they go through, or they feel like you telling them that if it takes you 45 minutes to get ready, you're broken. And they're like, I know. That's why I have to do 45 minutes of warming up. Right. So then I have to give them a PHQ-9. So, yeah. Just a- it's just a circular, you know, it's just a circular waste of time, really. Yeah. Uh, I also think that Graston and cupping, besides getting you dates uh, or making your wallet lighter, which is good from a weight loss perspective, uh, are not uh, <laughs> evidence-based. Uh, let's see. Curtis Holland 1 asks, jumping off that point... 
I forget which point. Uh, would any muscular or myofascial manipulation be beneficial in releasing muscle tension, i.e. I have a knot in my shoulder? Uh, can I also pause for a second and say that if you guys haven't listened to the Adam Sandler track about uh, suntan lotion and a goat <laughs> and knots, then you need to get that on Spotify. So uh, in any event, uh, would releasing muscle tension, like, like a knot in my shoulder, uh, with muscular myofascial manipulation be a good strategy? Or is it just placebo effect? What even is a knot? Ooh. Stumped him. So Stumped we're him. going down this rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we have no idea what a knot is, and our ability to find them is slightly at chance. Um, that's yeah. the nicest way I could say it. Um, if you look at the definition that is purported, they will say that it is a lack of oxygen due to overuse, which sounds a lot like the mechanism we use to adapt tissue in the first place. And it's even funnier with the in vogue modality being blood flow restriction right now, whose entire yeah. Mexic or like method is Mexican? to deprive oxygen. Yeah, Mexican. Um, <laughs> whose entire method is to deprive oxygen to the tissue. So if that was the case, every time someone trains under BFR, we should just have these knots popping up left and right if that was the physiological yeah. way they are created. Yeah. Um, the ability to find or palpate them is horrendous, and most of the time it, it's just a perceived thing. It, you, most of the time we're not sitting there rubbing our upper traps or our shoulders when we're feeling good, and so we don't really notice things that could be perceived as not. It's only when we're hurting and or aching and looking for something that we tend to mm -hmm. overanalyze our own anatomy. Certainly. Okay. So you're saying that we're bad at both identifying what, you know, any changes acutely in our anatomy, unless we have a gross deformity that is, <laughs> you know, yes. red, readily, right. readily recognizable and that uh, mashing on it or, or doing any sort of therapy on that is unlikely to do anything outside of placebo effect. Well, it's, it's unlikely to do anything physiologically, but sure. you can have some, the way I explain it to patients, if you rub it, it's, if your shoulder hurts and I kick you in your shin, your shoulder doesn't hurt as much anymore. Right. And it, if you're sitting there rubbing on it, you're giving yourself a more noxious stimulus than that dull ache. So you're just gate control theory in your way to feeling a little better. So then here's the question. Do you rub your patients? Miles? <laughs> <laughs> no, it is the easy answer to that. So, it, so th there are no uh, hands-on treatments with me. I, I'm much more about facilitating patient independence. So if so. you're in the Stanford area, do not go see Derek Miles if you're looking for a happy ending to your physical therapy <laughs> session. He will not touch you. Um, Austin. I, I will touch their souls. <laughs> God. Yeah, we're going to get deep. <laughs> <laughs> we just went for two and R rating. Um, yeah. Austin, do you uh, do any muscular myofascial manipulation to your, your patients? Absolutely, absolutely not. Um, and I agree. This is a massive rabbit hole. This is one that actually interests me in particular. And uh, for just so, uh, uh, many, many reasons, including some of which he, uh, some of which Derek mentioned regarding our ability to detect such things. And so the deal is that sensations that you have in your muscles a lot of the time have as with many of these other acute and chronic pain situations have pretty poor correlation with what's going on physiologically in the muscle and so if you feel this not it may or may not mean anything at all is going on in particular with that specific area of muscle um, and so if you want to go to a guru such as the ones that we recently debated with online, they will be happy to find your muscle knot. Or if you go to another one, he'll find your muscle adhesion. Or if you go to another one, he'll find your fascial restriction. Or if you go to another, you know, et cetera. So you can go to any number of these people, and each of them will very confidently, very convincingly be able to diagnose a tissue pathologic issue that falls squarely within their realm of practice. It's very extremely convenient um, that you know that that happens. You know, you're not going to go to a tissue to it to a muscle adhesion guru 
and that he's going to say, "Oh no, this is a fascia deal. I can't handle this. I'm going to send you to the, to the I'm going to send you to the fascia guy down the street because this is very obviously outside my territory. So I'm going to do a consult to my fascia guy." So that just doesn't happen here because there is no reliability in terms of diagnosis because there's nothing actually that we can reliably identify as going on at the tissue level. And so that also correlate that also ex- helps to explain the ease of which these people can uh, generate strong placebo effects, can rub on your muscles and make you feel better, but that at the same time can predispose to what Derek mentioned is when you have these passive interventions that are done to you, such as man- like all these various manual therapies, uh, electro-stim kind of stuff, tissue ultrasound, all these kind of things, it just fosters a sense of dependence that I need this person to rub my muscles out every week or I need this person to adjust my spine every week, for example, in order for me to be a functional human being the rest of the week. You know what I mean? Yes. So that's a huge issue with a huge issue with this process versus just reassuring people that their pain does not represent a threat or something incredibly dangerous or that they've ruptured every ligament in their shoulder. You teach them how to press with a weight that they can handle or whatever movement that they can tolerate without pain and load it progressively. And that builds this self-efficacy, builds confidence, can modify. That's so like the, 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 the gurus in this realm always refer to these neurophysiologic mechanisms. They refer that that's like their catch-all term for how these things that typically do no better than placebo how they work. It's so it's just a neurophysiologic mechanism. That's their like baseline explanation. Uh, if that's the if that's the case, how do I decide which one of you to go to for this thing if they're all the same and they just work by a neurophysiologic mechanism? Easy. I would propose I would propose that I use a stronger neurophysiologic mechanism that actually results in identifiable, quantifiable tissue adaptation, makes you stronger, makes you more confident, less afraid that you're broken and destroyed and uh, that you need to do 45 minutes of stretching before every workout before you can move your shoulder past 90 degrees of abduction, for example. So you're, you're saying I don't need to do any more neural nerve flossing? Nerve flossing, yes, yes, yeah, since that's not well, a damn thing. It's I've, not a thing. <laughs> I've been nerve brushing for a while, but then my, my nerve dentist uh, said to me that I needed to start flossing twice a day. Uh, otherwise, I was going to get a nerve cavity. <laughs> and, uh, well... And some of this vernacular, though, it it goes back to threat versus challenge. And if we keep telling people they're going to develop adhesions, develop knots, like you're giving them a threat. You're saying if you're more active, if you overdo it, you're going to have a problem. Whereas a lot of this is training people to see these setbacks as challenges. So uh, like pain science 101 is if you can get people to see the solution to what their issue is instead of framing it as a problem. Telling people that they have knots and adhesions, well, that doesn't tell them anything, but they have a problem. Telling them, hey, if you give this a little bit, it's going to get better. Everyone experiences this. That normalizes it instead of making it something that they need to stress about and go see whatever their guru of flavor of choice is. Right. Yeah. So I actually think that brings up a pretty good point for most of these soft tissue questions um, and soft tissue uh, uh, therapy questions. It's not that we're saying that going to see these professionals doesn't make people feel better. In fact, I think we would all agree that seeing them does make people feel better, but that the reasons why people are feeling better is not because you're removing any adhesions or making any, any changes it, at the tissue itself. Uh, you're making the change in a, a super temporal. It's a psychological experience that ultimately results in a, in a, how, uh, a change in how people feel. So the people we were arguing with on that thread, for instance, were like, oh, this is how an adhesion forms, even though that's not been demonstrated in any human model, uh, and here's why it works, and couldn't present any data to support their thing. And then their final retort was, well, you just come watch what we do, and people feel better. And it's like, we never argued that the people who come see you don't feel better afterwards. It's just that they don't feel better because you did anything to them from a, you know, a structural standpoint. This is, this is a, 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 a psychological. This all, yeah. This all comes back to the topic, kind of the, the, the inspiring topic for the article that I wrote called aches and pains about just the, the, the mechanical kind of the structural model of pain versus a more biopsychosocial approach to it. And so, you know, they are perceiving pain as more so of an input to the brain from the peripheral tissue, which is not how pain works. 
pain being much more so an, a conscious output or a sub, I shouldn't say consciousness, but an output of the brain. And so with that framework, all of, all of this stuff makes so much more sense as to the, the, the results that we see in the evidence when you consider pain more so as an output versus coming from that those those three little muscle fascicles that are adhesed together or not that are transmitting their inert their pain impulses up their peripheral nerve up your spinal cord to your brain shouting we hurt right here it's the other way around the pain is coming from up top yep yep it's interesting phenomenon so uh i did not decide to take up any either of those two providers on coming out to see them uh hypnotize people but i <laughs> Well, mainly because the way I would choose a soft tissue therapist would be like, well, who's the prettiest one? Who's the cheapest? Yeah, that's yeah. that's what I want. Like, if that's pragmatic, that's what I'm saying. Like, if interestingly, uh, in- interestingly, if you d- if you went for that, you would probably end up going and getting just a standard no frills, like regular massage, like Swedish massage or something like that. Which that ends up being oftentimes the comparator group or the control group in lots of these like professional massage therapy interventions or comparing it to Graston or like these other things. They just compare it to regular old non-specific Swedish massage, for example. And that's where you end up seeing no difference because people just feel good getting rubbed off. <laughs> I certainly do. <laughs> uh, all right. So we talked enough about stretching. I don't need to, we don't need to ask that next question now for something specific. And this brings us to one of the topics of the show, low back pain, Doug, nine, three, zero, zero, three, seems like a weird number. I'm Doug. What do you think? Like, what do you guys think this means? It's like, he's, he's G nine P three, zero, zero, three. Like that doesn't add up, but. Uh, yes, he's, yeah, I think it code. was his racing number from five years ago for a 10k. Ah, that's right, that's right. Yeah, I finished <laughs> 9,393. <laughs> okay, uh, he was diagnosed several years ago with herniated discs L3 to S1. Uh, just as an aside, herniating all of those discs that's a lot. Yeah, that MRI would be fun to look at. Okay, so he herniated discs L3 to S1 and a six millimeter sequestered fragment that was putting pressure on a nerve ganglion. After dealing with it for years and a flare-up that left me immobile for several weeks, the neurosurgeon recommended surgery. Shocker. Did a pre-op physical the week before surgery and as luck would have it, the issue started to resolve itself. So surgery was canceled. Shortly afterwards, also shock- I, shocker, I discovered barbell <laughs> training starting, starting with an empty bar and then started LP. Very minor flare-ups along the way that I'm able to train through, and training always seems to help. Question, what happened to the sequestered fragment, and do I still need to be concerned with it? Question mark. As the weight goes up, re-injury is always on the back of my mind. Is there any reason to not, is there any reason not to keep going and hit my goal of four, a 405 squat and 500-pound deadlift? I'm 49 years old, if that matters. Derek. So... Um... There's a lot to unpack here. The first thing being having a herniated disc, and once again, we're only getting part of the story. Um, at multiple levels at 49, it's sky's blue and water's wet. You're more of a unicorn if you have a clean MRI at 49 years old. So I'm not willing to put a lot of weight into the correlation out of that. But if you have low back pain and you do an image, chances are you're going to find something. As far as the sequestered fragment, you know, I, I'm, I'm the lowly PT in the group, so I'll, I'll leave the radiology to you fellows. Um, but if you look at the research, discs reabsorb and you can heal. If you weren't having ridiculous symptoms, the likelihood of me really biting on it being discogenic drops down pretty significantly. And you can't always be worried about a flare-up because then you always shortchange yourself on what you're able to accomplish. And it sounds like, you know, you started with an empty bar, you had a pretty good program for progressively loading it. So I don't see any reason why there's not a 405 squat or 500 pound deadlift in it. And so I herniated L3 and had motor weakness confirmed uh, six years ago. And from where I'm a sadist, I had some isokinetic testing numbers on myself beforehand. So I went from like a 8% 8% deficit side-by-side side to a 72% deficit side-by-side side after herniation and track those numbers on my quad over five years. And now I'm like a 15% deficit. So my quad has come back. It's just taken a lot of time. I'm in a lot of time under the barbell, but 
if you said to me you can either not squat or squat. I, I took one day off of training, which, to be honest, probably wasn't the wisest thing I've ever done. But I'm <laughs> stubborn enough to where I just wanted to do it. I assume for your quad, you're mostly doing high bar squats and quad sets. Is that <laughs> quad, quad quad sets? Just quad pumps, seated knee extensions, man. Quad well, pumps. I, I'll tell you what. I lived on the knee extension machine because it, anything else, my shift was so bad. It was I would do my squats, fall on my ass, and then go sit on the knee extension machine until I uh, couldn't do it anymore. Yeah, and I, what should, you, I should I should, I should clarify what what I meant by that is not the knee extension machine because I've literally seen a PCP tell a patient in order to strengthen their legs, they should do these knee these seated knee extensions. And what they meant is they sit in a chair and they basically just extend their leg out and then just kind of squeeze their quad a little bit repeatedly yeah. with their legs. Iso right? Isometric against yeah. gravity. Yeah, you get a long arc quad. That's right. Quad pumps, man. Quad Please pumps. Them. Uh, so and then Derek, just for posterity, uh, what do you squat now? What are we working with? Uh, 485. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I direct to you our, our man who had a miraculous, miraculous recovery uh, with no chiropractic interventions, and no muscle <laughs> adhesions were, were lysed. <laughs> and uh, somehow you went from not being able to squat without a massive shift and falling over to 485 uh, yeah. without, being, without uh, you know, being touched by the hands of a healer. So interesting. Uh, Austin, would you have any additions for this guy with a uh, dorsal root ganglion uh, sequester? I'm intrigued. I'm, I, yeah, I'm intrigued by the specificity that he described, like compressing the ganglion in particular. But anyway, he, he, he mentioned the sequestered fragment, just referring to just a bit of the disc uh, that kind of extruded out and ended up in the canal, you know, pressing on that. But really, he has his symptoms have clearly come close to resolving if not completely resolving and he's training um hopefully as close to pain-free as possible so yeah i don't have any i don't have any issues with him training continuing to uh increase the weight um and those goals are perfectly reasonable yeah the way i think you know if he had some of the disc material depending on what it what it, exactly the components of it were you know either the you know if he had an annulus tear as well or if he had some of the nucleus pulposus that had you know herniated out <clears throat> And it reabsorbed over time, you know, he may no longer have sequestered fragment, you know, it might be gone. The way I like it's to think about it. It's almost counter. Yeah. Almost no, no, I was going to say it's almost counterintuitive because the bigger the blowout, the more likely it is to heal. To come back. Yeah. So, yeah. The way I like to think about it is donuts. You know, if you squeeze a donut and all the stuff in the middle comes back out, you, you know, you it, sometimes if you just scoop it back in there, <laughs> you can eat it. You can eat it and not make a mess. And so some, this happens. This happens. I was wondering where that analogy was going, but it yeah. almost ended up in eating the donuts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the pain science people are typically not fans of the donut analogy, but I think uh, that explanation you might have won them back on board as yeah. long as the donut's still getting eaten. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Pain-free. Pain-free uh, mastication. That's my. That's my motto. Um, I have nothing to add to this other than you know, in general. I would not seek out a uh, surgical, um, surgical evaluation unless there were, you know, big red flag symptoms, um, going on, you know, loss of bowel or bladder functions, the saddle anesthesia kind of, kind of situation where it is actually an urgent or emergent sort of need for surgical consultation. And then, um, understand also that when you do look at long-term, you know, data on people who've had, uh, uh, surgical interventions versus conservative management in general, you're going to see, you know, uh, uh, either the same or better outcomes for um, conservative management in most cases, unless you, you you know you really take a bunch of caveats and that require surgery initially. Uh, Derek, with the other the the other the other situation that you have to pay attention to, particularly because I know people will cite a lot of data on this stuff, depending on what side they're on. But the thing is, you have to look at how far out these these trials are following people yep. because most of the time, I mean, I just saw one recently cited by, I think it was like an ortho and they cited the results of their orthopedic surgery. Even, you know, it, it, I can't remember if it was compared to an actual sham surgery or not the way it should have been done, but basically like at the end of a week, like pain scores were better. And it's <laughs> right. like, okay, that's not okay to be citing me that study. We need to be looking at pain and function 12 months out plus, you know what I mean? So, um, and that's where you end up seeing a lot of these things kind of, converge towards the same outcomes long-term um, after, you know, a week, a couple weeks, a month or two, whatever, they start to kind of become the same. Yeah. But you always have that. Oh, go ahead, Derek. Sorry. 
No, I think it's important to point out that's pretty much across the board. That's the same thing you see with the Graston studies or the cupping studies. Yeah, if you compare it to nothing and you're getting something extra, you tend to have a little bit of a pop towards the treatment. Sure. But sure. as soon as it goes anywhere beyond the treatment, everything regresses back to the same. Yeah, that's my favorite with with the my favorite with acupuncture versus sham acupuncture studies. You take like a trained trained person using the specific points, and then a random guy just stabbing needles wherever the hell he wants, and they end up getting the same outcomes afterwards. Yeah, pretty amusing. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the last thing I'll say about the surgical interventions are you know the practitioners aren't necessarily wrong for recommending surgery, right? So I'm not trying to make enemies here amongst the ortho or neurosurge crowd um, where, oh, surgery is indicated here, surgery is indicated there. I think ultimately we all practice this evidence-based behavioral practice where, you know, you have the patient um, who did very, very well with the surgery, you know, who's otherwise, and they, they're so thankful for it. And so ultimately that colors your sort of recommendations, whether you want it to or not, you know, it's like the, the farm rep who comes to lunch, like whether you think you're being biased or not, you're more likely to prescribe that medication just across the board. Um, so it's, it's just interesting to me how, I guess the algorithm doesn't really get ran through appropriately. And the algorithm I'm referring to is you have a back injury, you need to be referred to, you know, the correct practitioner. So they would be lucky to see you, Derek, you know, then you would say, all right, here's what we're going to do for this period of time and reevaluate our change versus, yeah, no, just see, you know, see the PT once or twice because your insurance doesn't cover it. And then you're not going to do your exercises or the exercises you're told to do are wrong. And then, uh, you know, at six weeks, it's no better. And ah, we'll go see the surgeon. The surgeon's like, oh, MRI says herniation. I fix herniation, right? You know, and and I, I'm not saying it's that simplistic. It's just it's a failure of the entire system, right? I had, I had a friend who's got a herniated disc in her neck, right? And instead of even seeing a primary care or a sports med doc or, P, you know, an actual PT who, you know, knows how to do this stuff, who's well-versed in this, right to ortho. And ortho's like, well, we're going we're gonna to go, you're going to surgery, you know? And... Ultimately, you know, it's hard. To, it's hard to have that conversation where it's like, yeah, you know, we should consider some other options. Blah blah blah. Um, and I don't know how you change that. So, Derek, if you had any input as how to change this sort of cycle where people just end up in the surgeon's office getting recommended surgery, what would you? What would be your big thing? Well, I think a lot of it is just treating it as a community because a lot of times what happens is you'll hear, and it goes both ways. The PT says he can't get a hold of the doc, or she can't get a hold of the doc. And we all just compartmentalize ourselves off. So I was fortunate or am fortunate even now to where I have very good communications with the docs and we all have a very cohesive team mm-hmm. out of it. But there are tools that, if you know the evidence, help us stratify. And we have like the start back tool, which depending on where you fall in low, moderate or high risk, it changes the treatment paradigm. And if you come with axial low back pain and low risk on the start, Chances are glitter and sunshine are all you're going to need in order to get better. But if we end up medium and high, then our treatment algorithm has to change in how we approach the situation. Uh, where do I get medical-grade glitter, though? <laughs> um, you know, what do you think the surcharge on that, just for calling it medical-grade, is? At least eight times, right? Well, I came out with the second line of, of Gains RX. It's the medical-grade Gains RX. So you can That's prescribe big pharma, it. man. Well, I'm a shill, yeah. but you can prescribe it. DID. <laughs> Uh, for for muscle muscle atrophy. Uh, the only thing I would, the only thing I would I would say that the other the other side of that thing. So so Derek sounds like he has a good relationship with some of the physicians that he interacts with with some of these cases. But you know some of the, a lot of the patients I see on a routine basis and kind of a lot of the medical culture at large. They they for a, for a lot of conditions and in a lot of situations they tend to have a pretty, uh, I don't know, pretty low expectations or pretty, you know, of, of, of what PT can do for certain patients in certain situations. So if you get this MRI and you see herniated discs from L3 down to S1 and they're like, oh yeah, PT is going to, you know, fix that. And it's like, well, that's might be because of your experience with certain physical therapists, but it's not necessarily reflective of, you know, what is possible with this patient. And so, you know, I'm friends with a number of, uh, highly educated, critical thinking, intelligent, and uh, uh, other sorts of therapists, just like Derek, in various forms of social media. And so that tends to color my perception of what a lot of, how a lot of these people think and treat their patients. But unfortunately, it's not necessarily reflective of how the profession as a whole, from, our, from, from what we can tell, does for a lot of these patients. So I think 
uh, some of these particular practitioners, Derek included, um, and your buddy, uh, your buddy Michael, right, are going to be doing a good job of trying to educate people at large on how to how to rehab some of these things more effectively. I'd just like to add, impossible is nothing. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Adidas. You can send me a check. Okay. Here's our last question, and it will allow us to address our last topic. So we got to talk about low back pain in that last question, and now we can discuss tendinopathy in this next question. Is it possible or ever indicated to strengthen tendons and ligaments exclusively? Uh, If so, is that more effective than lifting, or is it just an inefficient use of time for the average lifter? So let's, let's like bullet point this thing. Uh, Is it ever indicated to strengthen tendons and ligaments exclusively? Derek. I, I don't know that you ever could do it exclusively, yeah, but if we want to talk about right. it from an emphasis on the tendons, then yes, in a tendinopathy, especially once we're not a painful tendinopathy, it's directly indicated to attempt to strengthen the tendons as best we can. And originally it was more from the eccentric Alfredson's protocol, but then we realized that was a homeopathic dose and we've started seeing the literature move over towards heavy slow resistance training which let's face it i think for the cohort discussing this is is pretty much directly in our wheelhouse Um, so if you have a tendinopathic tendon that isn't painful then it's very indicated to attempt to strengthen the tendon and as far as ligament uh-oh time being our biggest factor on it, but you're still not strengthening the ACL per se. It's part of the global effect of the programming you're on. Uh, Derek, I think we lost you when you started talking about ligaments. Uh, I blame Trump for this. Uh, You were probably saying something (laughs) anti-Trump, but could you repeat from the ligament? So we got the tendon part. So what if you have a, what if you're trying to strengthen a ligament? What do you do with that? So you still can't directly strengthen a ligament, but if you look at something like an ACL, there is that re-ligamentization process that goes on, but it's essentially time on our side, and you're still strengthening everything around it, knowing that you're also picking up some of that process. Ligamentogenesis. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Yeah, yeah. ligamentoneogenesis. That sounds like an excellent supervillain. Yeah, well, you know, during my embryology days, uh, we, we coined some new terms. Um, okay, so, Derek... Uh, if it is ever indicated, so you have a tendinopathic tendon, which I think is an excellent name. Uh, is it more, oh, Jesus Christ, this question is awful. I can't, the last part of it doesn't make sense. So you're talking about doing slow resistance training, uh, in order to improve the uh, pain associated with the tendinopathy and overall make the tendon stronger. Um, mm-hmm. how does this differ from just doing heavy sets of five? Um, I don't know that it does, but I'm sure you've coached athletes that only have fifth gear and they just try and dive down into the hole every time. So sometimes it's just slowing down that cadence a little bit out of it. Or if you really look at it, you may be better off, especially um, in your non-barbell athletes, just putting in some heavy slow as a risk reduction strategy for it. So if they're not really the kind that wants to get under the bar saying, hey, we're going to go do three sets of 10 or four sets of six or whatever your arbitrary dosing is of it, of some really heavy, slow knee extensions. If you're a basketball player to try and mitigate the risk of patellar tendinopathy or some heavy, slow calf raises, if you're going to be a runner. So, um, also we need a psych, psych eval if you want to be a runner, but more importantly, yes. <laughs> uh, so a few important backup questions on this. One, how are you evaluating outcomes on the tendinopathic tendon? And then two, um, is there any indication for prophylactic sort of, uh, we'll just call it tempo work, not to say that it's just that's, that's how you're, you're, you know, your go-to protocol, but let's say someone doesn't have any pain, no uh, uh, objective evidence of any tendon degeneration. Uh, and so if you say for like a, a basketball player or someone who's uh, now going to be sprinting a lot more, are you having them do these uh, tempo leg extensions or eccentric work? Are you having them do, you know, calf work specifically? How, so what do you evaluate? And then would you have anybody do any prophylactic tendon work? So what we know from the lit is, this seems to help reduce risk overall. There is nothing saying that it 
completely mitigates it, but a case could be made if we know it is advantageous to have this component of programming in, prophylactically it could have a place. Okay. So if we want to spend a lot of time trying to develop performance, we need to make sure that foundation is with which to keep the athlete healthy as he's trying to push the limits, as it were, or however you want to verbalize it. But there is some really good evidence, especially for hamstring strains, for prophylactic eccentrics, especially like the Nordic hamstring curl. I was just going to say, am I doing the Nordic hamstring curl? Yeah. Yes, yes. That's that's the one that the literature says works very well um, to help mitigate hamstring strains, especially as you get into a season. But you're still talking about um, looking at some of the acute on chronic training load because most of your strains tend to happen as an athlete changes seasons, changes sports and they're getting introduced with this massive new bolus of stimulus that they haven't been able to adapt to yet. Let me be the crusty curmudgeon that I am. And uh, how well-trained are these people who are using the Nordic hamstring uh, protocol and, and seeing benefits? That is, are these people squatting 405 or, or dead? Pulling? Oh, definitely not. Okay. You know, <laughs> the, the biggest studies have been done with soccer players. Right, so um, the strongest athletes. So, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, in a case could certainly be made that if they were stronger, because there are some good systematic reviews saying if you are, if your strength is up, your risk of injury goes down, or there's a correlation between that at least. But going back to it, if I have the choice between constantly berating my athletes, trying to get them to go squat or saying, here's this that I at least can get you to do, I would rather hedge my bets towards that and keep working on the squatting knowing I at least have something prophylactically in play, place to try and reduce risk. Sure. Uh, yeah, that makes, that makes sense. I was just like, you know, uh, so, and just for the Nordic hamstring curl, uh, for the people who are listening to this who are not familiar, uh, would it be fair to say it's kind of like the first half of a glute ham raise? Uh, yes. Sorry, well, on the way down anyway? Yeah, on yeah. the way down. Okay. Uh, so probably if you train at a commercial fitness gym, you need a partner for this and a pad to put your knees on. If you have a glute ham raise machine, you may do this. Although I would argue if you're already well-trained and you don't actually participate in a sport that's formalized and has a full a season, an in-season and off-season, then it's probably not for you. Uh, you probably don't need to prophylactically do that unless you're under-trained or, or actually play a sport. Um, okay. Or now, if you decide you're going to go run a bunch of hill sprints and you haven't sprinted in 10 years, may not be the worst <laughs> thing to put in before you go do it. Sure. Or, or you know, just don't. Just don't. <laughs> just don't. Just don't. And, and, and again, I, it's not, look, I mean, you know, I'm checking my experience privilege. It's just, you know, how do we learn a lot of this stuff? Sometimes it's just our, been our natural experience and then we start looking into the, to the evidence and, oh, yeah, this comports with our, our sort of experience as well. Uh, but it is interesting to me that, you know, an, an article will come out on T Nation suggesting that hill sprints, you know, do all the stuff. They make your dick bigger and your, you know, testosterone <laughs> goes up and you get shredded and strong all at the same time. And people are like, dude, I definitely need hill sprints. And it's like, <laughs> I mean, if you've never sprinted before, why is the go de facto sort of effort level, you know, 11? Right. Like this, you know, this one goes to 11 versus, hey, you know, I haven't ever done this. Let me just ease my way into it. It's like, I, I don't know why that is, and maybe it's just I'm not experienced with human nature as much, but, but it does certainly seem like we get overzealous and, and go crazy with the stuff. I think you're experienced enough. I, I'll go ahead. Sorry. I, I was going to say, I think you're probably experienced enough with in terms of training clients to kind of get a sense of the type of people who just dive headfirst into stuff and they want to you know do it all the way or not at all. So it's just kind of maybe some of the stuff that we do, the coaching that we do for certain types of people might select for certain types of people who are really going to kind of tend towards extremes like that, you know? Yep. What a psych console. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> instead of uh, going to 11, we just need to make seven louder. So. <laughs> yeah. What? Is it louder than a 10? Yeah, look, mate, it goes to 11. <laughs> okay. So, Derek, you're awesome. Uh, I'm super impressed with your, uh, your started from the bottom. Now you're here squat story. That's, that's, that's incredible. Uh, going from a, a 85% deficit to f squatting 45, <laughs> where can people find more about you and how can people contact you? Um, if they would like to email me, my email is D miles in my L E S P T at gmail.com. Um, I do blog occasionally at the logic of rehab.com. Um, it's, 
taking a little bit of a backseat at the moment to something else Michael Ray and myself are working on, but I'm slowly working on a review of dry needling evidence, so that should nice. really be fun when it comes out. Hey, but dry needling fixed my butt, so <laughs> that may be true. Maybe true. Uh, and then do you, are you on in the Instagrams? Are you on the... Yes, I am on the Instagram. It's uh, M-D-E-R-E-K-4-0-1-1. And for the numbers for you, that's basketball and football number from high school. I just can't let it go 17 years later. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my original name was Camaro Z28566XOXO, but then I... <laughs> Jesus. Uh, okay. So, hey, we're at an hour and 10 minutes. I think we covered everything we planned to talk about, really. Anything else, Derek, you want to throw in there? or? Uh, I'm certainly good. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, it's awesome having you on here. We'll talk them into, we'll into coming back next time, hopefully when we get another internet fight. So, uh, <laughs> for, for all the listeners out there, thanks again for listening to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Make sure to head over to iTunes, leave us a review, so we can uh, leapfrog all the bullshittery that is in the fitness industry and people will actually hear our podcast some more leave us a review and uh, we'll catch you guys next time